Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Gary Saul Morrison, who is Professor of the Arts and Humanities at Northwestern University, and Morton Shapiro, who is the President of Northwestern University and a Professor of Economics at Northwestern. Welcome, Saul and Morty. We're so glad to be here. Thank you, Gil. As uh, we know, you're a Northwestern alum and a Northwestern parent, so <laughs> even a greater honor than normal to be on yes. your podcast. Yeah. We have a true Northwestern bias in this conversation, so I'll put that out there for audience to audience to digest. Um, our our um, conversation today is about your latest book, Minds Wide Shut, How the New Fundamentalisms Divide Us. In which you say polarization may be pushing democracy to the breaking point, uh, but few have explored the larger interconnected forces that have set the stage for the crisis, namely a rise in styles of thought across a range of fields, you say. Um, and that's what you call fundamentalism or fundamentalist. So do you have a crisp definition for it? Um, Saul, I'll start with you. Well, yes, we did define the term, not in the sense that we want to regulate it uh, forever, just to make clear how we are using the term, you can use it in lots of different ways legitimately. We are trying to identify a style of thought that uh, the most important characteristic is uh, a closure to counter evidence. You simply know what the truth is and everyone else who thinks differently has to be wrong. You know that in advance, nothing will ever shake you. Um, there are some, a couple of other you know, characteristics um, as well. Uh, you know, you sometimes there's there's the sense that the truth is perfectly clear. You know exactly what it is because who could not see this? You know, in, in the original meaning with uh, religious fundamentalism, that is because you have the notion that the Bible's meaning is absolutely on the surface and perfectly clear. So that's why you take it literally. But it doesn't have to be that. There's just this conviction that, well, 
I'm a scientist, and if you don't see it, you're just scientifically illiterate. That's all. That, that's you know that that sense. Um, and the third would be uh, the, probably the least important, but still significant, is that there's a sense that there is a founding or important text, you know, which can't be wrong, which you revere. Very often you don't even read it, but you, you know, the way people don't read the Bible. You know, in the Soviet Union, it was, you know, the classics of Marxism-Leninism. They simply, if, if, if physics contradicted it, physics was wrong. You know, you just knew it right, right there. Um, so th those would be basically the three characteristics. They tend to go together, as you can see, because all of them imply absolute certainty. Yeah, so, so I want to push on that a little bit. So, so that, that is sort of the foundational characteristic, right? So you have a set of beliefs that appear sort of deterministic, that appear concrete. And anything that sort of goes against that should be, should be wrong. Um, and so any sort of experimentation, empiricism, any sort of emerging data would not be valid, right? Yes, you know in advance that you know it, it, it can't be. Um, so, you know, if people do disagree, um, you know, it could only be because um, they are evil and guided by nefarious motives or simply too stupid to understand. Um, those are the only possibilities open to you. And so if evidence seems to contradict it, there's something wrong with the evidence. Yeah, so, so Maury, you know, I know that we're going to talk in detail about the, the economics aspect of it, but um, so, so what, from your perspective, uh, what is sort of the foundational characteristic of a fundamentalist? Well, I just to follow up on the conversation so far, I mean, I, I think it comes down to whether you believe something that is open to contrary evidence, you know, the great philosopher of science, Karl Popper, said, of course, you should, your view should be falsifiable, right? And if you believe something in your heart and soul and no evidence can possibly dissuade you, that is a fundamentalist belief. And I think we all have some. Uh, it's important to recognize the fundamentalism in each of us, but we should also probably minimize the percentage of all of our deeply held feelings that are not falsifiable. Yes. Yeah, so when I was reading the book, you know, I was wondering, this seems a fairly common characteristic. We've got 8.3 billion people. Um, I don't know, conservatively, I would say maybe 6 to 6.5 billion of them are fundamentalists by definition. Um, so there has to be some sort of a survival uh, benefit to being fundamentalist, do you think? Well, I, I would just say that, push back a second, I, mean, I think we're all, if there are 8 billion people in the world, there are 8 billion fundamentalists. It just depends on, are we a fundamentalist in everything we believe? So I believe, I happen to be an observant Jew, I believe in a benevolent God, and, you know, the atheists could, you know, scream at me all they want, and, and, and I don't care. <laughs> that's who I am, and that's a belief I have. Saul believes in the existence of great literature, as exemplified by Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And, you know, all the deconstructionists and the modern theorists could all say, no, it's all relative and all that. And Saul's gonna say, you cannot convince me that I'm wrong. But I think the important thing is that while we all have some fundamentalist views that define who we are, 
you know, I think we should be open for debate on the vast majority of other views. And, you know, that's the sort of what underlies democracy, that we might be wrong and that we're open to contrary evidence. So I think we're all fundamentalists, but we shouldn't all only be fundamentalists. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So, um, you know, as I was growing up in South India, um, so, you know, a debate um, was a debate was prevalent. Um, you know, uh, there, there is a way to debate um, and, and the English culture of debating, take the counterparty's ideas. You can show why that could be wrong. There, there is an art of debate, mm -hmm. but we seem to have lost it, right? Yes. I mean, you know, to be a good debater, you have to really understand the other point of view, which means you have to be able to paraphrase it in such a way that a believer in it would accept the paraphrase as valid. But if you only listen to, you know, if you're in a silo, you only hear people on your side who describe the other people as, you know, evil or stupid, there you don't hear that what makes them believe in it. You know, uh, you know, the the line I like so much from John Stuart Mill is, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. Um, you really, you know, if you don't know the arguments against your position, you're believing it the way one would believe in the grossest superstition, right? But unless you sort of open yourself to that, and people are increasingly not doing it, they, you know, live in, in silos, they never hear, they cut out the other point of view, of, you know, before they even hear it, well, then really you are believing like the grossest superstition, um, you know, your points of view, even when they're right. Yeah, but but how did we get here? You know, both of you have been long-term educators, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, generally education has been increasing worldwide. So how did we get into the situation that um, we, are, we are unable to take the counterpoint and refute it in a, in a logical fashion. Do we not teach that in education institutions? Well, I think some teach it more effectively than others, but I think one difference for the way I grew up here, and I don't know your experiences in South India, but you know, it was really hard to live in a, a silo or in an echo chamber, if you will. You know, I, I mean, we watched everybody together, most Americans watch the, you know, the nightly news. <laughs> and whether you watch Dan Rather on CBS or Tom Brokaw on NBC or Peter Jennings on ABC or before that, Walter Cronkite and his, you know, his peers, um, you know, it wasn't like we watched because we're really conservative. We're going to just stick to Fox News or we're really liberal. We're going to watch MSNBC or CNN. And it wasn't, you know, we read the paper, we, there was more of a common uh, understanding of what was real and what was not. Um, yeah, it was true that I liked Newsweek more than Time, because Time was a little bit more conservative, but it wasn't the echo chambers that we live in now. And I think that with the development of social media and with changes in communications and technology over the last couple of decades, it's become very comforting you know, just to turn on, read, read what echoes your feelings or you know, watch what echoes your feelings and 
you know, it doesn't challenge you. So I, th I think maybe when you grew up in South India, you debated because you probably there was more of a common understanding of what was going on in the world than there is now. And when you grow up with, uh, you know, it's comforting to be in an echo chamber. You know, you feel better about yourself. But I think you do yourself a disservice. And I certainly think you do democracy a disservice. Yeah. So, so Mori, I want to ask you this. So um, is the choice that gives us segmentation schemes? So, for instance, suppose there is only one news service and everybody listen to that new, listens to that news service. And then you say it's a binary choice. I'm going to agree or disagree. You get debate. But let's say we have four different news services and then you self-select into four buckets. Uh, and then once you're in the bucket, you never get out. So is it choice that, that led us here? Well, you know, going back, Saul would say about the former Soviet Union, if you only have one news service, it better be an honest one, right? So that's a little risky, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, but, uh, you know, if that one service is the BBC or if it's something like that, then maybe you can live with it. But, you know, I'm an economist. Economists love choice sets. Um, yeah. But, you know, with you asked about what's different, and I think it's the communications and technology, you know, revolutions of the of recent generations that have allowed us to avoid, you know, any thought we don't agree with. And I think that is very polarizing and it's polarizing, not just in politics, but in economics and in the academy and literature and certainly in religion. And, and you know, I don't know what you say, Saul, but you, you, you're always asking. It was a great question. You know, what what happened? that put us into this situation where everybody's screaming at each other and no yeah. one's listening. And the idea of debate is, you know, win at all costs, not learn from each other. And I, I you know, I have to say, I, I think it was, you know, a lot of these, it's a proliferation of silos that we, many of us live in. And, you know, one of the recommendation, and, you know, we've been given a series of book talks and I, I keep saying to my liberal friends, have you ever watched Fox news? And I said, no, no, no. It's a, it's the devil. And I said, well, what do you think they say about CNN? You know, I said, watch it. I do. You know, I watch a little of it every day. And, and you know, I, I, you know, I'm not talking about when the anchors come on at night and screaming and all this stuff. But I'm talking about most of, you know, during the day, they present the news with a conservative bent. But it's, I recognize it as the news. And, you know, if, even if I'm not convinced, it helps me understand why half of Americans you know, voted for then President Trump and, and then almost as many or more, but almost half voted for him again after the job that he did. So it gives me some understanding of why people believe, you know, have a very different view of what the world's like. Yeah. Yeah. So also, you know, there appears to be a self-selection bias. And once you self-select into a club, uh, you are in that club. You don't, you know, the club has no windows. It's actually a waste of time to look outside the window, right? Yes. I mean, I I remember something happening here approximately, I can't give you an exact time, 20 years ago when I would talk to people, you know, in our wonderful journalism school. And there was a kind of switch from the idea that our job is 
to be as fair to all sides as possible and presented to our job is to be social advocates for our point of view. Yeah. Um, and that, that happened about 20 years ago. And the same thing, of course, is now happening on, on the news. What, what Morty was talking about back when it was, you know, Walter Cronkite and, you know, Peter Jennings, uh, there was at least a, an attempt, you know, to present it in such a way that you, know, you were, could hear both points of view, even if you favored one of them, right? Um, right. And that, you know, what, what's happened now is that isn't the case any anymore, right? Um, and so that's why if, even then, if you listen, let's say, to a, you know, a liberal news broadcaster, you had a sense of what the conservatives were saying, what the centrists mm -hmm. were saying, and vice versa. But that's not true now. You have not a clue. You know, I mean, I'm, I have colleagues who, you know, you know, who will say things like, uh, oh, that awful Wall Street Journal that hates immigrants. Well, if they've been reading it, they know for 30 years or 40 years, the Wall Street Journal is a highly pro-immigrant <laughs> newspaper because they believe, you know, free markets and immigrants are free labor markets. I mean, they, they have no problem with it. They, they, they're in favor of it. They won't lose it. And yet you hear people characterize it. They know in advance what the Wall Street Journal has to be saying because they're bad guys, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so, so going back to this uh, fundamentalist criteria you have here. So the, the first criteria you have is certainty. Uh, you call it negative fundamentalism. Um, so, so Mori, why, why do you beat my certainty? Well, I think, again, there's no reason for debate if, you're, if you know the truth. So yeah. you might humor someone, but you're not going to be open to reconsider your views. And I, I mean, I think that's, again, I'm certain about certain things. You know? And, you know, one of the early reviewers of the book had a great line that we've now learned, Saul, I don't know if you you know, one of our interviews, somebody looked it up and there's a history to this line, but I didn't know it until the, she shared it with me that you want your mind to be wide open, but not so wide open that your brain falls out. And I think that's a, a great line. You know, you, there's some areas where you want your mind wide shut, um, but not too many areas. And I think, you know, I, there are certain beliefs I have about the economy and about other things and faith I mentioned before that, you know, I'm not ready to debate. I'm not interested in any facts that can possibly change my mind. But there are a lot of other things that I am open to learning from people who know more about subjects than I do. And I want to see the evidence. And, you know, I want to see if I was wrong. But, you know, you don't put everything on the table. Because if you put everything on the table, then who are you? Yeah, so so let me let me push on this a little bit, Mori. So you know, um, at Kellogg and other business schools around the country, uh, when you get an MBA, you are taught uh, capital asset pricing model. You you are taught NPV. You have your Excel spreadsheets where you have deterministic cash flows. You have a discount rate, and you are taught that you know if you have a positive NPV project, you take it. Otherwise, you leave it. There is no business in the world who does that. And so why do we teach that? Well, I think, you know, sometimes you teach, you know, everybody knows that the world is a much more complicated space than yeah. what you do with a simple mathematical model. But usually the sim simple mathematical model has some value that, you know, I mean, you know, in our previous book, Sense and Sensibility, we talked about that great 
length. Um, you know, you look at the neoclassical model, not just in finance, but more generally in the field of economics, it, it makes some very unrealistic assumptions, but that doesn't mean that you can't learn a lot from it. Um, and then, you know, when you're teaching MBAs, I began my career teaching it at teaching finance at Wharton all those decades ago. And, you know, these are people who had come from many of them from investment banking. I came from grad school immediately. Right. So they knew more about the real world, but I felt like teaching them a little math and teaching them about efficient frontiers and the like, you know, they can apply it. And I think most of them do. Otherwise they wouldn't keep paying for MBAs. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, I, I was thinking this idea. So, you know, in physics, we made a big transition from Newtonian mechanics to quantum mechanics. And it, it made many people very, very uncomfortable and still continues to be. Um, Newtonian mechanics, as you know, works most of the time, but it doesn't um, in, uh, in specialized domains. And um, the idea of determinism, I wonder, is a characteristic that we're imposing on students from an education perspective. So when they come out, they they want certainty. Um, they you know anything that that shows uncertainty or flexibility seems sort of countercultural. Do, do you think that is true from an education perspective? Well, I'm curious what Saul says, but I I don't think we impose it. I I think that they come to us wanting it, and you know Saul and I have teach this popular undergraduate class. We've done it 11 years in a row with over 1,200 students cumulatively. And, you know, we do get people who write on course evaluations. Why don't you ever give us the answer? Why are you always debating? Why do you then ask us to write an essay on what you think? Yeah. Well, just, you know, learning how to learn and, and, you know, is the most important outcome of higher ed. I don't, I don't think learning the formula for, X, you know, the rule of 72 or something, you know, you know, yeah, we do it. The Coast Theorem, we do it. But we do it in a way so that people then can apply in yeah. the real world. Uh, otherwise, it's just a bunch of formulas that people are going to forget. I don't know, Saul, what do you think about that? You, you're, you're an exemplar of, of not giving the answer, <laughs> not saying what your view is, and, and having the students develop their own views, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you two sorts of examples here. In, in my own class, let's say, on Russian novelists, um, I teach you know, Dostoevsky or Tolstoy from their point of view, if I drew, you know, say something from the modern world to illustrate it, it's the sort of thing they would pick. If they want to know what I think about, you know, morality or you know their social concerns or religion, I won't tell them. I'm not important. What they need to do is get into the head of a genius who thinks differently. And I'll do the same with their characters, who all are you know described in a given point of view. And that way, they learn to think in different ways, it broadens them. Where if I just told them what the truth is, why read the book at all? But on, on the other side, I, I think from talking to my students who are science majors, that science is really badly taught because it's typically taught as a series of dogmas which are true and which are known. But that's yeah. not what science is. That's what catechisms are, okay? <laughs> what the, they ought to be teaching the process, well, how do we, what experiment established this? What were the alternatives? Why were those alternatives not the right one? What might dislodge 
the present. Then you see science as a process, and you also see that some theorems of science are much more firmly established than others, much more likely, much less likely to change than others. If someone's, you know, speaks of science, you know, we see these signs in the lawns that says, I believe in science. It's like they're taking it as one whole block that can't be questioned. Yeah. You don't believe in science and you don't believe in the Pythagorean theorem. You know, <laughs> that's not, it's not something you believe it. <clears throat> if that, that, if you say that, you haven't understood science. But I think a lot of our, you know, when you teach science classes as a series of theorems that you just must memorize and apply, you have really done a disservice to the understanding of science. Yeah, I mean, it has become, as you know, a big problem, the confirmation and confirmation biases in science, right? It's, um, I don't know, Marty, it's a lot easier to get tenure or if you conform to the system or if you confirm, but it's already been established. Uh, if you go to the fringes, it's it's a lot more difficult to actually make it in education. And so is the system sort of set up in this way? Yeah, I'm actually not so sure that, you know, what you said is true. I mean, I, I know people say that, but um, it depends on what kind of an institution you're talking about. The vast majority of the 4,000 colleges and universities in this country you know, are teaching undergraduate teaching institutions. They're not research institutions. So, yeah. you know, are you really publishing papers that confirm what other people had already done or not? So, I mean, you're really just talking about a very small number. There's only 63 great uh, public and private research universities in this country as signified membership in the American Academy uh, of, of Universities, AAU, Association of American Universities, excuse me. And you know, and I think most of us, you know, really do look for innovation. I mean, I know I, I, I saw a study was going to be a physicist before as an undergraduate at Yale, fell in love with literature. But, you know, I've, I've always been an economist. Uh, you know, I, I have some people in my department here and other departments I've been in who, you know, they are not just doing other people's footnotes. I mean, they are really, really innovative. In fact, yeah. one of my Kellogg colleagues had the lead article in the American Economic Review or top journal two, two months in a row, actually, this has happened. And they, they are professors of strategy, not of econometrics or anything. They were very technical papers, but they were really innovative papers, which is why they were on the cover, you know, the lead article in the AER. So, you know, I, I, I don't really buy into this. I don't know what you think, Saul, that, you know, somehow the process of getting tenure at the relatively small number of top research universities somehow stifles innovation. I, you know, I haven't seen it in my field, certainly. I don't know if, Saul, if you've seen it in yours. No, I don't think that that's the, um, the issue. I think at all levels, <clears throat> you can be more open to different opinions or less. Um, and, you know, in a period like now, when we're you know, opinion is much more restricted and narrow. Of course, it is for um, getting tenure, but it's also for after tenure. So I don't think the problem is, you know, what you have to do to get tenure. Yeah. No, no. You know, we, we obviously criticize ourselves, um, um, you know, really, uh, really badly sometimes. Um, graduate education in the U.S. is, is um, the best 
in the world. We have the best researchers in the world. And so if we are not doing it properly, I don't think the rest of the world is doing it properly. So, uh, but, you know, I sometimes felt that there is a tendency toward um, normalization. There's a tendency toward falling in place to the average. Um, but I, I, it sounds like, uh, sounds like, sorry, you don't share that. You, I don't share that there's a tendency to push towards the average. Well, yeah. you know, there's always a return <clears throat> to the mean everywhere. Um, uh, so I guess that there's a sense in which that's true. You know, there's certain things that if you want to play it safe, you can do to, you know, get promoted and get tenure. And, you know, I know people who, you know, who do that. And that's, that's really all they care about. But that's a temperamental thing. That means that what's top on your mind, you know, is getting a sinecure. Um, and there are a lot of people who, who are like that in every field. But it's also, you know, in academia, it could be that you just have a passionate desire for the truth, in which case, you know, you might not go the, the current way. <clears throat> Those are kind of temperamental um, kind yeah. of things, right? I mean, there'll always be people of both sorts. Yeah, so I want to go to uh, an idea in the book, uh, Divided We Stand, The Politics of Hate. Um, uh, depending on your perspective, um, you know, some people went through a traumatic experience last four years. Others went through a traumatic experience eight years before that. Mm -hmm. um, but it is it is clear that we have 330 million people uh, and 160, 165 million people voting. It is clear that we have a blue bucket and a red bucket. And there is no transference between those buckets, right? Yeah, I think that's yeah, a good way to put it. I, 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 what worries me is, you know, how many of my friends when Trump was elected in 16, you know, who said, I never met anybody who would ever vote for him. I was positive he was going to get trounced by Hillary Clinton. You know, I, I can't understand it. And then, you know, I've heard from people when part of the, refusal from some to believe that he actually lost the election to Biden was that, you know, I never met anybody who didn't love Trump. You know, it's like <laughs> polarization is so extreme now. And I have friends in England, you know, many friends in academia, particular who still just can't believe the Brexit vote. You know, they just, I never knew anybody who would ever vote for pulling out of the EU. And, it, and it's that degree of shock indicates that, you know, you know, dialogue is significantly lacking. And the other thing I would say is that if you take people from the far right, um, yeah, they hate the people on the progressives on the left and AOC and the squad and all that. But they <laughs> seem to have special hate, not for the people 180 degrees different <laughs> from them, but 90 degrees. You know, it's it's the people who don't have the guts to have any views because they're compromisers, they're moderates. And I would say the same from the progressives, as much as they despise the people on the far right, they seem to have special scorn for people yeah. in the middle. And, you know, we talk about that in some length in the book. And, you know, it, it is pretty remarkable that the Bernie folks, you know, in 16, 
you know, some of them were proud to say they'd rather have Trump elected than Hillary Clinton because she was a liberal and not a progressive. And then, of course, during the nightmare of January 6th, you know, the, the insurrection mob seemed more interested in, in killing Mike Pence than in, in Nancy Pelosi. Whoever would have guessed that? Well, that's what happens when you have fundamental, fundamentalism run wild. Um, you know, the one thing they agree on is that the, the middle of the road is worthy of more contempt than even the people on the extremes. And that is, I got to say, that is really, really worrying. And again, you know, the critics about, you know, now President Biden, he's a compromise. You know, his his best friend was John McCain, you know, yeah. as if that's evidence that there's something in, inherently wrong with him. And I think you can not be swayed by another's belief, but still have respect for that person. And I think that's what the middle tends to do. Yeah, there's a, used to be a, a saying in in Texas that, the only thing you find in the middle of the road is a white line and a dead armadillo. <laughs> I never heard that. That's a great line. <laughs> but, but but it's a matter of fact. Yeah, so, so um, I find that very interesting that, you know, um, I, I sometimes tell people that I, I don't, really analyze policies based on if somebody's wearing a blue shirt or a red shirt. I want to listen to the policy. I want to look at the merits of that policy. Not saying I'm I'm a great guy or anything like that, but that is, that is how I think. But um, we don't have that anymore, is it? So, 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 Marty, what you're saying is that if you are in the middle, you're going to get shot from both the left and the right, because you are sort of the, the worst possible position. Well, I'm afraid that is increasingly the case. And, and you know, again, the book talks a lot about that. But, you know, the, you know, chapter four in economics, right? So it's my field here. But so, of course, you know, wrote a lot of it as well. You know, we give example after example about economic policies to reduce carbon use to you know, dealing with student loans, to dealing with tax rates, to dealing with health care, minimum wage, you name it. You know, there's so much agreement. You know, we have extensive literature that is apolitical. And in some cases, I, I believe, like I believe the evidence is very clear. The minimum wage should be $15 an hour. And that's a progressive view, not a, you know, living wage necessarily, but a progressive view. I also believe that you know, the Green New Deal is a tremendous mistake because of the excesses in it that diverts us from the true uh, necessity of dealing with climate change. So, you know, some would say, oh, he's a progressive. Some would say he's a conservative. Well, you know, I, I, I try as much as possible as an economist to look at the data and make that decision. And my aim is not to feel good about myself because I'm in a particular camp, but, you know, to be as most effective as possible. And so I can give many examples also from the book in other fields where that's what we argue, that's what we should all be trying to do. So, so Saul, you know, it, it seems to me that being in the middle is a risky position. So the Gen Z population that both of you teach, um, they should have a preference to go to the extremes, right? Because that, that appears to be the safe place to be. Yes, although <clears throat> I try to 
ask my students, well, if you're advocating a particular policy, let's say to alleviate poverty, do you want it to alleviate power, poverty in the best way? Or do you want to feel good for advocating a position that is supposed to alleviate poverty? Because mm. if you want the first, then you not only don't close out counter evidence or other views, you look for them because you know you don't have, you're not guaranteed to have the perfect policy. Most policies fail in practice. You want to prevent that. You want to find out in advance. You want to get the count and change your policy to make it work better. Yeah. But there's a question then. You have to decide which it is your goal. And if you're if you rule out counter evidence, then what you're basically saying is I don't care whether it works. I care that I am with the good guys. Yeah. Yeah. So so, so I, I know that you, you do some work in the yeah, in the pre-university arena too. Um do we have a problem with sort of the, the basic education um, in the U.S.? Um, you know, it seems to me that the most fundamental thing about education is the ability to take information, analyze it, and question it. Yeah. Do we do that in the, in the high school arena? You know, I'm, I'm not an expert on, you know, the high school arena. I can only judge from the, you know, the students that... Um, you know, I wind up gone through it. Yeah. And my impression is there's been a change over, you know, the 35 years I've been teaching at Northwestern. In one good change and one bad one. In the STEM fields, they, yeah. they, the students come in knowing a lot more than they did 35 years ago. Yeah. In the humanities, in history, in anything like that, they come in knowing much, much less. They don't know how to write English very well in most, the way they do, they don't know basic grammar. Their knowledge of history is much poorer. And their idea of what a social view is, is, you know, a dogmatic view that they've been taught. Not hmm. everybody, of course. I'm just saying there's a general, there's more of a tendency so that the quality of education they get in the humanities is less and the quality in the hard sciences and mathematics is better. Yeah. But then are, are you also saying, Saul, then, you know, in some sense, um, the humanities education need to be more prescriptive? Why prescriptive? I mean... Um, uh, so so in, the, in the STEM education, you know, most of what we teach in the high school uh, you know, it's more about sort of deterministic physics, chemistry, biology stuff that that cannot be refuted. Whereas, you know, I don't know much about humanities, by the way, so also I'm just making this thing up. But in, in humanities, the, the, the scope of thought has to be a lot broader, right? Well, yes. I mean, I tend to think that the function, let, let me just focus on one part of humanities or of yeah. lit, what I know best is the teaching of literature. Um, but you can apply this to history too. Uh, the main thing you want to get across is that people in different cultures and different centuries saw the world genuinely differently. And the way you look at their points of view, they look at yours. Mm. And 
you you do not lie. You're, it's not as if your point of view is guaranteed to be right forever. People 10 years ago might have thought the same, and you're going to look stupid 10 years from now. You do not live at the, it may, you, what you believe may seem right to you, but that's because you haven't thought of other things. You want, humanities ought to teach you what it's like to think differently. You know, great novels will show you people from different social classes, different, you know, periods, different psychologies, different religions, value sets. History, if you teach it correctly, will not be us judging them. It will be understanding the world, projecting yourself into, let's say, 18th century France and see what did they believe? What did they see? What was their view of the world? And what riches does it have for us that we may have lost? Not just where does it differ from us, they're wrong. How does the way they see things that sometimes are smarter than what we see? They're different. In any case, you want to start out by understanding the difference, and then you no longer will have the idea that your little island in, you know, space and time, you know, yeah. Americans in a certain social class, you know, in a certain set of professions, in a certain year, are that's the truth. You will simply not have that view. You will know it's one of many. Great, great. So, so Marty, I know that you have worked uh, outside the U.S. in many, many places with the World Bank. And I'm wondering now, you know, what are the characteristics that makes you gravitate toward the blue bucket and the red bucket. Um, you know, my own experience has been that, as I mentioned, I grew up in South India. I went to the adjacent state for uh, to get an engineering education. And out of there, I flew directly into Evanston. Nobody told me Chicago and Evanston is going to be this cold. <laughs> and in 30 days, my perspectives changed. Um, and so, so is it is it because we don't really have a broad knowledge, perspective, understanding that that pushes us into this blue and red bucket problem that we have? You know, I, I think there's always going to be some expertise that everyone has, but most of the time we rely on experts, you know, the talking heads on the TV and the like. And, you know, I, I think that's always been the case. And, you yeah. know, but the difference now is, you know, you get a view and then you just have it reinforced and not challenged by the media in, with which you engage. And I think that's very different. And you mentioned that, you know, development economics used to be one of my fields. I did, you know, some serious travel and a little bit with as a consultant for the World Bank in the 80s. And, you know, I think what I came out from, you know, that experience was, uh, you know, if you ever try to do work in other countries, you, it, if there's anything that gives you intellectual humility, that's it. Because you don't speak the native languages, you don't understand the culture, you don't usually understand the religion, you don't understand the literature, you don't understand the politics, you know, but yet the temptation, of course, is to take your individual Western perspective and just apply it. And, you know, people who know much more about the disappointing experience of in the developing world over the last four or five decades, you know, Joe Stiglitz and, and people, Nobel Prize winners like that, you know, they they speak to this one set of, you know, prescriptions fits all. 
And, you know, in my field, economics, you, you know what it is, is that the government gets rid of subsidies. Um, you know, you support uh, exports, you don't replace imports, you know, you, you float the currency. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. And there are general guiding principles that Saul and I write about in this book and our previous book that, you know, seem to be true. But there's no definitive set of economic policies that guarantee um, you know, economic growth rates of the kind that some Asian countries and even now more recently, some African countries have. So, you know, what I learned from that experience was that uh, you should listen more than you speak. And if you think that culture doesn't matter, you are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Modi, I was talking to another academic the other day, and I, I just learned from that conversation that 2.7 billion people out of the 8.3 billion that we have cook over a kerosene-fired open flame. And it has a deleterious effect on their health. 2.7 billion, you know, mm -hmm. one-third of the world population. And, um, you know, I, I cannot just internalize that, right? So, you know, we, we talk about all sorts of things in the academic world, but there are some basic things missing that we can't really do anything about. Well, I think we're, you know, I don't know what that number used to be. And of course, I, I don't, I, I mean, I have no reason to doubt that this person was correct. I actually do think it's a little overestimated, but this yeah. is not my expertise. But, you know, whatever that number is, it's larger than it should be. And in addition to health, I mean, it has a devastating impact on climate change, as we know. Um, but that said, you know, I mean, you don't have to be Steve Pinkner or one of these other people to say the world is like much better off. If you look at the number of people who live on, you know, two dollars a day or two fifty a day uh, in extreme poverty, it's a fraction of what it used to be. I mean, particularly as a percentage, but even in absolute terms. So, you know, I would throw up my hands there. I mean, I think that there has been a rising tide that's helped. Many, many. And yeah, I mean, global inequality is higher. And that's simply because the richer countries have gotten richer faster than the poorer countries have gotten rich. Right. So, you know, if you're talking about absolute standards of living by virtually any measure, the world is so much better than it was 10 or certainly 20 or 30 years ago. But the relative inequality, which matters also for a whole bunch of good reasons we talk about in the book, actually. Yes. Um, that has been exacerbated, you know, in this country since 1979, where there's been a tremendous increase in inequality of wealth and of income. Back to the point now where the last time we've had, you know, the top 1% or 5 or 10% own this percentage of America was back in 1928 before the onset of the Great Depression. So all the progress between 1929 and 1979 in this country, 50 years, was wiped out very quickly and very similar story started a couple of years later in England and, and many countries and still in the EU. Uh, but, you know, yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between absolute poverty, which you're alluding to, and relative poverty and absolute poverty. We've made tremendous strides that we should recognize. Yeah, I think that's true that, you know, sometimes you think about sort of the aggregate aggregate development, aggregate wealth, 
but the but the relative aspects of it is it's quite important right so uh, i mean we are seeing this in the us um 50% of the country doesn't have enough retirement money that they can you know reasonably retire um and then 1% of the country has you know 99% of the gdp that we create including all the money going into <laughs> that covid-19 um checks that all ends up in amazon or some place like that um so 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 we have a real problem in sort of relative relative um aspects of wealth um um or not just wealth but utility uh distribution do we have a solution for that well we argue in chapter 4 in minds wide shut um that yeah there are a lot of solutions for it as i said before economists agree on you know what tax rates for the most part should be particularly the highest marginal tax rate before you get a serious backward bend in a labor supply curve you know serious labor disincentives uh, people agree for the most part on what the minimum wage should be they agree on you know carbon policies healthcare i mean you know it's it's the old joke from you might know this old joke from president truman who said you know what i really want is an economic advisor with one arm <laughs> and they said well why is that and he said cuz all my economists say on one hand you should do this mr president on the other hand you should do this i want somebody with one arm and only one hand well we have one hand i got to tell you cuz you know there are some things like the wealth tax to be fair and certain nuances of 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 changing the affordable care act we argue in the book but you know there's a lot of agreement and you know the market fundamentalists on one side or the market it's a misreading of adam smith as we argue at length in the book you know wealth and nation 1776 never said that people are only you know motivated by selfishness and their own individual monetary greed nor that markets left alone laissez faire always serve the public good but yet that's the founding document for market fundamentalists that you know you should government can't get anything right leave the markets and then now there's this emerging particularly generational uh, emerging of market anti you know anti market fundamentalists that that the real problem is endemic in capitalism and somehow you need a planned economy or you're never going to address the ills of the world and you know people thought that that idea of a planned economy was banished to the dustbin of history as we argue in the book and it is kind of surprising and i would say very worrying that it's come back yeah, yeah. um so <clears throat> i would just say that in addition to all the problems with you know economic equality both income and wealth is a uh, a kind of cultural inequality that is mm. um you know I mean the thing not just things like the distribution of you know education and opportunities but the sense that some people have that they are simply superior people you know and other and the others are just too stupid to realize that they are being looked down upon where they know perfectly well and mm. you know um, my guess is a lot of the reason that you know people uh a lot of people voted for Trump is that they felt you know when you call people deplorables you know you know when you and, and that was the most explicit it was everywhere you know 
Yeah. You know, the jokes of Samantha P, you know, are all about, you know, you know, these knuckle dragging people who interbreed, right? Um, you know, that thing, you know, it's very, if you really believe in equality and democracy, you do not treat some people as subhuman. And, right. you know, that's part of what you get when you get silos, you know, you get elites who don't even realize they're insulting other people. Yeah. They are, and that become that, and if you know, these people are already feeling, you know, economically pressed, and then, you know, to blame them for being bad people for, you know, for some elite standard, you're asking for an explosion, you, and you don't have to do it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, words have consequences, especially if you know words. Um, yeah, so we'll take a quick break, uh, uh, Saul. We will come back. We'll talk more about your about your book and uh, religion and other areas. Okay, sounds good. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast, providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back. Uh, We're talking about uh, minds wide shut, how the new fundamentalisms divide us. Uh, by Saul Morrison and uh, Martin Shapiro from Northwestern. Um, um, Saul, you know, w- one of the chapters in the book is about religion. And um, religion has become sort of a loaded word in the Western world. And so uh, fundamentalism is uh, typically associated with the term religion, but uh, we talked about all sorts of fundamentalisms before. Uh, before, but religion still remains to be an issue, right, from a fundamentalist perspective? Well, you know, the fundamentalist view as we describe it, the closure to evidence and uncertainty, um, was certainly true in certain religious groups, still is, but it's just as likely to be true in non-religious groups, and particularly in a secular age, you know, instead of speaking of, you know, a revelation from God, you say, science told me, you know, has the same, you know, it has, it has the same force and you jump to it as, as rapidly. Um, and there are open-minded people in religion and outside of religion too. I don't think the, the, although the term comes from the religious fundamentalists, the two styles of thinking we're talking about are as likely to be true among the religious and the secular. Yeah. So, um, Marty, you know, you you mentioned that um, you are a religious person, and um, and you look at it that way. Uh, but at Northwestern, I would imagine, um, with all the scientists and engineers and technologists around, it's a very secular place, isn't it? You know, less so than you might think, and I think oh, it has yeah. to do with the Midwest. And you know, as a student and as a parent here, that. You know, Midwestern values, so to speak, are you know, not just 
and intellectual humility and civility and, you know, less taken with yourself, less entitled and the like. But there's also more of a faith-based communities. And, you know, I've been at a number of secular, you know, colleges and universities and the, the faith-based communities here are very strong, whether for the Jews or the Catholics or the Muslims or the Hindus and on and on and on. And, and you know, we have chaplains for all the different groups and it's a very important part of, of life here. And there's also, I have to say, a, quite a number of STEM folks that, you know, who never miss a, a mass at the Catholic Center or are very actively engaged along with me at Hillel for the Jews. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, there's the view that somehow, you know, people of faith are just people who are superstitious, you know, as a person of faith, I obviously reject that. And I, I think there's an open mindedness on our campus that, you know, it's it's there's I, I don't think students, faculty and staff are as defensive as about their faith as they might be at other secular schools. Yeah, um, I, I'll show my bias, Maurice. You know, I, I grew up as a Catholic in South India. I consider myself to be an agnostic now. Uh, agnostics, I think, are what atheists call confused atheists, um, mm -hmm. I suspect. Um, but agnosticism gives me a lot of flexibility. But, but what, so what, why do you think religion is important? Well, I think, you know, we all need some sort of thing to ground us on uh, morality and, and give us a serenity and, and uh, trying to look at the best of the human values. And I think, you know, some people get it from loving nature. Some people get it from whatever it is. And, you know, I'm, I'm not one of these people of faith who feel like I found the answer and nobody else did, you know, Saul has a very different relationship with faith and God than I do. Um, and that's fine. I love him. I, I literally do. And, and, you know, for me, yeah, I, I couldn't survive. It's who I am. And, you know, I, I, I always think that particularly in my day job as a president, when, when I'm having a tough time, I always think that, uh, you know, Shabbat is never more than six days away. Yes. Yeah, so all, you know, um, but as I was reading the book, I, I thought about, you know, sort of my upbringing. Um, this is a small state in South India. Yeah. It's a very unique place. Um, it has 20% Catholics, um, 30, 35% uh, Muslims, and the rest Hindus. It had a 5% Jewish population, which, is, which was there for 2,000 years. And it has 100% literacy and negative population growth rate. Uh, which you know all metrics that are sort of unusual for a developing developing area, and uh, religion for us was really parties. You know, we went to every temple, we went to every church, every mosque. Every time there was you know some sort of a festival, everybody participated in it. Um, that might be now called cosmopolitanism. I I don't know what the right term for it. So. Uh, did we lose that idea now? Well, you know, my sense among um, students is that um, they are completely tolerant of, you know, any religion or any religious disagreement, but for a very simple reason. They don't give a damn. Mm. 
it's very easy to be tolerant of something you don't care about, right? Yeah. So, you know, you know, when I came here, you know, you would get people saying, oh, no, I'm a Catholic. I would never marry a Protestant, right? Um, <laughs> and I remember you know, growing up and it was even like, I'm an Irish Catholic. I would never marry an Italian Catholic. You know, <laughs> I grew up in, but, um, and, but now, oh, no, you know, that doesn't matter. But I wouldn't marry someone from the other political party. That's absolutely impossible. <clears throat> so the same kind of prejudice is, is still there. It's just yeah. switched, you know. You know. So another way you could say this, you know, there's a um, there's a, a line I've thought of a lot from you know G.K. Chesterton, which is the problem with atheists is not that they believe in nothing, but that they are ready to believe in anything. <clears throat> And if you think of Marxism, Leninism, yeah. or Nazism, <clears throat> or other <clears throat> equivalent ideologies, um, you know, Maoism or whatever, there that's largely true. This need to believe, uh, you know, being a you know a, a Jew or a Catholic, you know, it it's 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 much <laughs> it's less dangerous than than yeah. what the alternatives would be likely to be. Yeah, it, it is quite interesting, Saul. So you know, Amadi and Saul, you know, this could be a field study for your book. Um, again, the place that I grew up, all the metrics that I, I told you, it's also the first democratically elected Marxist government in the world. Uh -huh. uh, it's pretty, you know, it's 28 million people. Uh, right after Indian independence, they elected a Marxist government uh -huh. uh, to power. And I grew up reading all the Russian literature translated into my language. And um, unfortunately, Marty, Voice of America didn't really win <laughs> in the propaganda yeah. war uh, there. And so, so again, you know, here is a sort of a, an experiment um, where you had religion, you had sort of um, um, political ideology, you had education all mixing together into some sort of an outcome. And, you know, in, in your book, um, it's all about that, right? You have politics, you have religion, you have economics. Um, so these domains sort of mixing with preconceived notions. But it seems to me that um, if you have an initial condition of an open mind, none of these things could matter. Well, certainly having an open mind is something that we we support as educators and as authors. And I mean, that's really what the book is about. You know, the subtitle is how the new fundamentalisms divide us. Yeah. And you, you're you're talking about in a location in an era where it, you weren't all that divided. I assume you're talking about Kerala. Or you, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Well, I know Kerala actually pretty well. Uh, it's one of my favorite places in the world. So I got to take you there. No, no more beautiful places with the lakes and the dance and the cuisine. We love Kerala. Uh, so anyway, yeah, that's sort of uh, heaven on earth, isn't it? But, um, you know, I, I don't know what it's like, you know, how people raised there now or raised differently than you did. But you know, having a mix of faiths and and perspectives, you know, is 
sort of what we dream about, but I think it's increasingly difficult to find in reality. Yeah, the other side of the coin there, Marty, is that when I came to Evanston, I had a host family, uh, Mr. and Mrs. McCulloch. They both passed away now mm. uh, out on Central Street. And, you know, I, uh, as I mentioned, I came to Evanston right from South India with, um, without ever going outside my state or the, the two adjacent states. And, and so I didn't know what to expect, but in, in 30 days, they could acclimatize me to the, the U.S. culture. Um, and so, you know, the, it, is, it is quite possible for anybody to, to think broadly. If you're willing to, right? If you're willing to. So, so uh, Saul, you know, um, I know that you have, you know, d- done a lot of work in Russian literature. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're going through a scenario now that um, I don't know how many Americans really know Russia that well, but there is sort of a hate built up in the system. Uh, do you think that's warranted? Oh, uh, look, there are a lot of things that, you know, the, the Russian government does that are not in American interest or that, you know, are opposed to our values. But I think that the um, what we're seeing is a, a hatred of Russia, which goes beyond that, you know, um, beyond what is reasonable, um, as if it were, you know, um, a place to project our frustrations on as, you know, as the enemy. Um, in, in sort of, you know, uh, in, in a way that we haven't seen since the McCarthy era. And in the McCarthy era, there, you know, there was more reason than there is now. They were, the Russians were much more dangerous then than, than yeah. they are now. Um, and it was bad enough then. So, you know, uh, you know, you know, being a student of, you know, Russian history, I, you know, I will say that for all the reasons that we would not like the Russian government and Russian policy, um, by Russian standards, this government is as good as it gets. Mm. You don't have 10 million people in the gulag. (laughs) A a, a scholar can publish a book that doesn't propagate the party line. It could be about something completely apolitical. You couldn't do that in the Soviet Union. Everything there was not just negative censorship; there was positive censorship. You had to you had to say certain things, right? Indeed, you could probably even criticize Putin as long as it was in a scholarly book that can be read by three hundred people. Who cares, right? Um, none of that is true in the Soviet period. It's you know this is an you can travel abroad if you had the money, which you certainly couldn't do, you know, back then. You know, by Russian standards, this is really. Uh, this is, it's not going to get any better. I'm sorry to say, you know. Things are, things are improving. Uh, Marty, sure they're so, improving, but they're, you know, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're not as bad as they were, you know. No, okay, not as bad as they were. So, Marty, you know, in the, in the book, you have sort of a path forward. And you talk about a return to dialogue. Um, is that what we are missing in this country? Are we missing a dialogue, a debate? Um, a, a way to take your uh, ideas and show why that might be wrong? Yeah, you know, that's what sort of the book, as you know, is about. But, I, you know, I, 
Saul and I have a little different view about how optimistic we should be about achieving that. Um, you know, I'm encouraged by the fact that we did elect a, you know, a, a moderate who takes pride in compromise and respecting both sides and listening to both sides. And, um, and you know, that makes me encouraged. I, I, I don't know whether we're going to get out of our echo chambers, but not having a president who throws, you know, gasoline on every little fire is, is certainly makes it a little better. Yeah. Um, so I'm more optimistic. Now, I, I know Saul maybe because of his expertise in Russian history, you know, is, is not always that uh, sanguine, you know. I mean, people talk about, oh, it's a pendulum and it comes back. And, you know, we talk about in the book, is, is that really true? And Saul, yeah, you, you worry about that pendulum coming back, right? Is it really a pendulum? Is that the right metaphor, right? Yeah, so I heard somebody say, oh, yes, you know, they're censoring points of view they don't like. They're trying to, you know, eliminate the independent, you know, court, which would guarantee our, you know, civil liberties against the majority government. Yes, but that's temporary because the pendulum will swing back. Hmm. And I, I thought about this for a day when I heard it, and I said, how do you know it's a pendulum? What if it's a, that's the wrong metaphor. What if it's a snowball coming downhill? You don't know what the metaphor is, right? And the history of, you know, govern, of polarized, radicalized societies, let's say during the French and, you know, revolution, during Russia, starting about 1900, um, is an accelerate, once this process of intolerance start, it accelerates. And nothing will stop it until there's a countervailing force. And in the case of, you know, you know, in the French Revolution, you got it eventually with Napoleon, right? But you didn't get any, you never got it with the Russian Revolution, right? Um, yeah. You know, so unless there's going to be that countervailing force, it will push as far as it can. You know, intolerance breeds on intolerance. And it, and it could switch sides so that instead of having, you know, a left-wing intolerance, you get a right-wing intolerance. That's entirely possible, right? Um, yeah. You know, the idea is, well, if they did it, we're justified in doing it, too, and we'll do it even more, which I think is entirely possible, right? Um, and then it could go back again. But intolerance breeds upon itself um, on both sides. Yeah. And so, Saul, so I, I want to um, finish up with um, Cheko. I don't know if, if I'm finishing, I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Oh, yeah. Right, Cheko. Chekhov. So Anton Chekhov was perhaps the greatest short story writer, you say, who ever lived at Enemies, 1887. His exemplary of his work, in some 20 pages, only 5,000 words, he explores where the lack of dialogue and the failure of empathize may lead. Um, we are seeing this all around the country today. We have a lack of dialogue and possibly a failure to, failure to empathize. So um, I know that, you know, it, it is clear where that might lead, but do we have some sort of a preventative <laughs> um, interaction we could, we could attempt? Do you mean uh, to make things better? To make things better. Yes, I think, you know, I am pessimistic, but I'm not hopeless. And, you know, uh, people, can make a choice that, well, we want to empathize with people we disagree with. We want to see it from their point of view. We want to treat them like real people, not like 
you know, um, enemies, yeah. the chair title. And, you know, things are not in stone. People have choices, cultures have choices. They could choose, you know, to make the other choice. Maybe Morty's right that, you know, in some respects we're doing it right now. Um, I hope so. Um, and I think, you know, empathy, uh, not just emotional, but intellectual with people who think differently. That's Chekhov's supreme value in all his stories is empathy. I think it's what great literature is about because you see the world from the perspective of, you know, characters who are unlike yourself, you identify with them. That is what, you know, is what we most need right now, you know, intellectual and emotional empathy with those unlike, and cultural with those unlike ourselves. Yeah, so Marty, I want to close with you. Um... Um, you know, after a long career at Northwestern, you have announced that you're stepping down from the president of Northwestern. Um, are you coming back home to the Northeast? You know, I'll tell you something. I, I get asked of that a lot. <laughs> I really, you know, I still have um, 16 months. Uh, and I, I just, and it's hard to believe. I have no idea what we're going to do, where we're going to live. I mean, my wife and I, I'm just working on getting the graduation ceremonies in a COVID world, getting them together, ready to prepare for the new normal for research and teaching and everything else in the fall. And then, you know, I, we have searches for athletic director, or dean of the law school. I mean, I just working around the clock and you know, I, probably maybe in a year from now or something, we'll yeah. have to think about where are we going to live? You know, I won't be in a president's house, but um, we're really not... Um, not focused on it now, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This has been this has been excellent. The book is "Minds Wide Shut: How the New Fundamentalisms Divide Us." I really enjoyed reading this book. Uh, I have to say, Marty, you know, when I was there at Northwestern in the mid '80s, they used to uh, used to give us free tickets to go see the cats. But things have improved a little bit. Looks like. Well, the students still get them. Uh, so as you know, your daughter, the undergrads all get free tickets. I think we're the only school in the Big Ten that gives free entry to all athletic events to all of our undergrads. I hope we keep that, even though we win a lot more than when you were here. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. Thanks for our pleasure. Be well. Thank you. Be well. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.